Hello, and welcome to the News Cycle. I'm Jihan Moon, and I'll be your host for today. It's Monday, September 28th. In the wake of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death on September 18th, many people have been taking a look back on her career and legacy, as well as questioning what her death means for the political landscape of the United States. She was the best kind of American that there is. And I've always looked up to her and wanted to be like her. She taught us how to stand up straight, put our prettiest collar on, put a little bit of lipstick on, and fight like the devil. I'm really scared for my uterus right now, and I'm scared about what's going to happen next. This week I interviewed UC Davis Assistant Professor of Political Science Christopher Hare via Zoom. Hare has predominantly researched voting behavior, political polarization, and campaign strategy. We discussed how Ginsburg's death will impact the upcoming election and voter opinions. This interview took place on September 24th. Since then, President Donald Trump has nominated conservative-leaning judge Amy Coney Barrett to replace Ginsburg. Can you summarize what the national response was to her death and how has her death influenced the political landscape we're in? I mean, the Supreme Court is, is interesting. It's, it's um, you know, an institution, one, now one of the rarer institutions that uh, does enjoy widespread popular support and faith. Not to say that all of its decisions are, are um, majoritarian, but it has this reservoir of goodwill in the public that's been pretty resilient even in a polarized era. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of those justices who was able to pop out against that backdrop and really ignite the, the popular imagination and, and, and very much be a champion to those on the uh, political left for her career, all the different achievements that she had, as well as her uh, judicial philosophy. The public reaction has been treating it almost like a head of state, right, and that, that there is widespread attention, mourning, etc., which is a little bit surprising for, you know, again, an institution that is well-respected, but is not as much in the public eye as, as uh, you know, Congress or, of course, the president. There's a big controversy right now going on about what's going to happen with her seat and whether or not Trump should appoint or nominate a new candidate. So can you just talk about that controversy and what do you think will happen and what do you think should happen? Yeah, so this is, is something that is, you know, has gotten worse and, and, and it's probably gotten more severe over the last um, 30 years, which is uh, the politicization of the judiciary. So, right, you have a few trends going on. You have increasingly polarized parties in Congress and the electorate. You also have, you know, over a longer, a slightly longer period, the court intervening in increasingly personal matters and issues. Right? So things that, that touch on very deeply held values and commitments of people, right? LGBTQ rights, abortion. So it makes sense that the federal judiciary was not going to be able to remain very immune to that. Um, it, it's never been, but it, it's, it's especially ratcheted up uh, over recent decades that right, you have competing parties who want to appoint as many justices as, as possible. And so whoever's in power, the other side trying to slow down the process the, the party that's in power trying to get through as many appointees as possible. Um, and, and this really came to a head during Obama's first administration when the Democrats controlled the Senate, right? Democrats controlled the Senate up until 2014. Republicans were pretty effective in blocking Democratic appointees. Schumer enacted the uh, 
a, a variant of the nuclear option, which was in the filibuster, and so you could appoint justices with 50, uh, with 50 votes, either with a tiebreaker or anything greater than 50 votes. That was a very much a gambit, and in the eyes of many, not a very effective gambit because Republicans, of course, controlled, you know, took back control of the Senate in 2014. Then you had Scalia's death. They refused to consider a, a, an Obama appointee. During 2016, right, uh, Scalia died, I believe, in March, and they said no election year appointments. Of course, now everyone has flipped sides because, right, this, this ultimately comes down to power. It's a question of power. Who can get in the most justices? And so, yeah, I think what's going to happen is, is that Trump's going to make a, an announcement this Saturday, and it looks like McConnell is going to, to be effective at keeping enough of his party together uh, to get whoever Trump's nominee is appointed and probably before the election. So this is going to be pretty breakneck speed for a modern digital appointment, which have been getting longer and longer. But, you know, given the unique circumstances, it's going to look more like uh, an old nominee um, where hearings were much briefer, less controversy, and it passes. You know, there's going to be a lot of controversy, but it's just going to be condensed in a uh, quicker time frame because they want to get this, this done as soon as possible. Um, and so I think that's what's going to happen. You mentioned uh, Justice Scalia when he died in 2016. He died much earlier in the year than RBG. How did his death being earlier in the year change that situation in a way that is similar or different from this situation? Yeah, and I think that's what Democrats are jumping on to, to sort of justify why they supported an election year appointment then and not this year that it falls six months later in the election calendar than Scalia's. You know, whether or not that, that's credible, that's going to be up to voters to decide. I think, you know, the, the biggest difference for me as far as, you know, predicting what, you know, explaining what happened then and predicting what's going to happen now is that, of course, in 2016, you had a Republican Senate, you had a Democratic president. Uh, here you have a unified Republican president, Republican Senate. And so they can make more high-minded arguments about what are the Senate's duties, what are the obligations of the Senate to consider nominees before or after election or during an election year. But just looking at it empirically, it seems like it comes down to, you know, do you have the, the ability to push through a nominee or not? Not so much about the difference between March and, and uh, September of an election year. That's not really what it's about. It's more of a proxy for, for power. So she, of course, had the wish that her seat was not to be filled until there's a new president. How much weight do you think that wish holds? I think very little. I mean, I'm sure Scalia had the same wish. I'm quite confident in saying that Scalia would have certainly had the preference that a Republican president point his replacement than another, and that that's not how it works. So again, it can be a talking point, but as far as, as it being something that's sort of unique, you know, every every justice would like to be able to decide their replacement, right? They want to leave a legacy and they want someone ideologically close to them to replace them because they want their side to succeed. And, and so, you know, her having that, that last wish or reports of that last wish, it's not that unique. I think it carries probably very little weight. It's an effective talking point, but, you know, that's not really anything unique or special. Do you think her death will affect voters in any of their decisions this coming November? And if so, how and why? Yeah, great question. So I think there's something that we call priming uh, in political science and political communication, which is you can influence people not only by changing what their attitudes or their preferences are, but in simply making some considerations more salient or more top of the mind, more important to voters. So if you have preferences on issues that are most directly impacted by a Supreme Court appointment, abortion, legal abortion, LGBTQ rights, uh, religious liberty, some of these other kind of social and cultural uh, issues that 
routinely come up on the Supreme Court docket, uh, and those were perhaps maybe a little bit more muted, well, this brings it back to the forefront. And so I think that that's going to be the largest impact it has on, on voters. Uh, those who were maybe a little bit more conflicted between Biden and Trump, which is a relatively small set of the electorate, of course, doesn't mean they're not consequential. It's going to heighten the salience. It's going to bring uh, to the forefront of voters' minds issues that were probably a little bit more submerged before Ginsburg, right? So considerations about COVID, the economy and the economic performance, foreign policy, America's place in the world, Trump's ability to handle the presidency. All those are still going to, certainly going to be important, but this adds a little bit of a wrinkle that those considerations now are going to weigh more heavily in people's vote choice um, as well. And I don't think it has a strong... Um, it's of, of a strong benefit to one side or the other. It, it sort of fires both both bases up more a little bit, but this was already a pretty high interest heated election. Uh, so there's a little bit of a, a ceiling on that. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it, it provides a strong benefit for one side or the other, but it is going to make those issues more important and it'll have some rallying effect. Uh, we've already seen that in you know, the surge in, in donations and contributions to both sides uh, since her death. It's just gonna be that much more of a consequential election. And finally, is there just anything else about the effects of her death that you haven't mentioned yet that you would like to mention? I, I mean, for me, the big question that I do not have a good prediction about is how are Democrats going to handle it? Like, let, let's assume that Trump is able to get his third appointment to the Supreme Court, right, that's able to go through, and the basic models hold, which predict, you know, not, not with certainty, but there's a, I think it's more likely than not the Democrats are going to retake the Senate, probably the presidency. Well, what do you do in response to that, right? On the spectrum of doing nothing to totally remaking the, uh, the Supreme Court and adding new states, giving sainthood to DC, Puerto Rico, et cetera, to change the Senate, removing the filibuster, all of that. What are they, you know, what is their choice? How far do they go? And this is complicated by you know, many, many figures on the, the left, many Democratic senators, former Democratic senators, including Joe Biden himself, who have more of a deference to those Senate norms of, you know, go slowly, move incrementally, don't do drastic radical restructuring, you know, of institutions like the Supreme Court or adding new states. That's certainly their, their inclination. The question is, are they going to get pushed further to the left on this? Are, are they simply going to have to adhere to some of those demands, to some of those changes by the activist left in response to Trump getting this third consequential appointment? Um, and does that start off just sort of a chain reaction that, you know, every time the Republicans control the Senate, they add a few more seats. Every time Democrats get control, they add a few more seats and on and on and on. Is, does this become basically a judicial arms race or is there some sort of a halting procedure? And I don't have a good answer to that. I think there's arguments to be made for both sides are going to play out, and I, I just don't have a good handle on which eventuality we're actually going to see. The News Cycle is produced by the Blue Devil Hub in collaboration with the Davis Enterprise. Katrina Haas and Jihan Moon are the producers. Our theme music is by Daniel Ruiz Jimenez. Thank you for listening. See you next week, Davis. Davis.